This is Dr. Canadiana, a podcast about Canadian theatre history. I'm your host, Ashley Williamson. Episode 10, Canadian History in Performance. On this episode, I'm going to discuss the way theatre and performance have been used to tell Canada's history. I'm excited, since historical performances in Canada was the topic of my dissertation research. I have spent five years reading, experiencing, and writing about it. I promise I'll do my best to keep this episode under five hours. To start, let me make some distinctions between the types of historical performance and theater I will be examining here. First, I will define living history and its practices. Living history is what happens at historical houses or museums or national parks. Perhaps in primary school, you visited Black Creek Pioneer Village, historic Fort York, Outside downtown Toronto, maybe you went to King's Landing in New Brunswick, Calgary Heritage Park in Alberta, or visited the St. Roche Schooner at Victoria Maritimes Museum. Maybe you looked at an excavation at Dundurn Castle in Hamilton, Ontario. These are all examples of living history museums. The core of my research about historical performances is that there is a very specific kind of Canadian theatre happening on these sites. Then I will touch on the theatricalization of historical events. Some examples are the trial of Louis Riel. Every summer since the centennial, a play based on the transcript of Louis Riel's 1885 trial for treason has been performed in Regina, Saskatchewan. Or Let Them Howl by Sharon Bayer, which is a reperformance of the Canadian suffrage movement's 1914 mock parliament. George Boyd's consecrated ground about the historically black neighborhood of Africville in Halifax, or even Kevin Kerr's Unity, 1918. These plays rely on historical documents, archival research, interviews with firsthand witnesses, and other tactics and methods that I discuss in episode four, Collective Creation. Remember, one of Paul Thompson's goals for Theatre Pass Marai was to illuminate the historical, social, and political issues specific to Canada. But, to begin, living history sites. If you have been to any of the places I mentioned earlier, you have seen the kind of performance I am talking about. Historical interpreters, or animators, or reenactors. The names are nuanced, but essentially interchangeable. These people populate the site in historical outfits doing historical things. This form of historical work is not specifically Canadian. Both US and Europe have versions of it. However, there is a particularly Canadian method of doing it, which is colloquially referred to as the Lewisburg method by those who participate in it and study it. And so this story starts in Lewisburg on Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia at the fortress of Lewisburg. There, the language of 1950s Massey Report on Canadian culture, yep, Massey touches everything, and the Rand Commission's proposal for economic recovery on Cape Breton leveraged funding for a renovation of the 1776 French colonial fortress of Louisbourg, starting in 1960. The confluence of government influences also included a desire to have the renovation ready for 1967's centennial celebration. Yep, centennial again. And this was the key to understanding how the Lewisburg method came to be. I will break it down. 
In the 1960s and early 70s, there was a social turn in history. The turn was away from looking only at great men and great events and turning toward the study of what regular people from the past were doing with their daily lives, feeding sheep and making boats and baking bread and repairing roofs or building fires. And so this was what John Lunn, Lewisburg's project superintendent, did. He devised a plan to animate this new kind of history site using people. This wasn't totally new. There was a living history tradition in the USA and in parts of Europe. What was different at Lunds Lewisburg was that he wanted visitors experience the past on the site to be able to make connections to their own current present lives. The attention and support from the federal government, which we know is cha-ching, into the restoration of the forest, as well as the new social turn and how Lunn implemented it on site, is why the way living history is done in Canada is often called the Lewisburg method. My earlier research was to determine what exactly this method entailed. And this is what I decided. There are three types of performances that happen at living history sites. And those three taken together are what make the method. First, quotidian performance. These are the slice of life performances. So as you walk through Upper Canada Village, you look over to the river and you see a man using an ox to pull a barge full of hay and other items along the water. You haven't been told why this is happening, but you get the idea by watching. The farmers in this area make their transportation work easier by using the water. Two, vignettes. These are short scripted scenes or scenarios meant to teach while entertaining. For example, you might be touring through the legislature in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, and two women and a man dressed in 1860s era garb walk into the gallery with you and talk to each other about the conference that is happening between Johnny MacDonald and other provincial leaders. They speculate about who is taking which side of the argument and what might happen later at the formal dinner party they are all attending. By watching this small historical play, you are meant to get a better understanding of the Charlottetown Conference of 1864 that was the beginning of Canada's Confederation. Unlike the previous scenario, these vignettes are deliberately theatrical and formed. They are scripted, rehearsed, and played to a specific audience. Three, demonstrations. And I have split this into two further categories, skill demonstrations and military demonstrations. A skill demo might look like you coming across a woman in one of the houses at the Fortress of Lewisburg, making a lace collar. As you sit with her and watch her work with her needle, she might tell you about her life as a wife in the French colony. She might worry about her children in the inclement weather or her husband's salary. She will tell you who she is and how she lives while also showing you what she is doing. Similarly, you might have this kind of interaction in a blacksmith's shop, kitchen or bakery, or anywhere a boat might be needed, by the sea, by the lake, near a river. Military demonstrations are always a firepower. Always. You might hear about the soldier's life, his rations, his tent, his adventures, but if a site you visit is even remotely connected to the military, there will be an appointed time for cannons and muskets to be fired. It is my contention that these three categories are what makes up the Lewisburg method. It is also my contention that these are all pieces of theater. The suggestion was not always met warmly. 
people who do living history are often historians first, and to them the suggestion of theater seemed to be insulting, as though I was accusing them of being fake. Too many times to count, I was told, I'm not acting. This is real. I spent a great deal of my time arguing with older men with mustaches and muskets, but the varying levels of theatricality I had just witnessed in their reenactment of a Voyager skirmish with troops sent by the Hudson's Bay Company. I was frequently confounded not just by the anti-theatrical biases, but the paradoxical ways living history practitioners discussed their own theatricality without ever calling it that. For example, the reenactor in Thunder Bay, who accused me of diminishing his serious commitment to history by using words like acting, script, and rehearsal to talk about that weekend's activities. But in the very next breath, saying to me he was going to order Pyro to add more squibs to the tree line to make this a whole big better show. Theater. I concluded that the anti-theatrical viewpoint was born from a fundamental misunderstanding of what theater is. To them, theater is fake, make-believe, playing. For people for whom history and getting historical details down to the button, correct, this was an insulting accusation. But for me, who not only studies theater, but uses theater as a teaching tool, as a research tool, it was frustrating to be rebuffed. Couldn't they see the possibilities of embracing theatricality? No. No, they could not. As soon as we open it up again after this giant plague, a research project I manage can start up again. The goal of this project is to work with living history performers to use theatricality as a tool in their work. I want to end this section by drawing your attention to something I think is of critical significance to the way living history performance is framed in Canada. The compressed timeline for the work to get done so the site would be finished for Centennial and also the insistence by the directors that the fortress remain open to the public during the restoration meant that the archaeological dig was the first animation visitors saw of the site. Not historical animation, women in bonnets making bread, men sanding the bottom of a boat, or children feeding chickens, but rather the contemporary bodies of historians unearthing the past. This was, to me, the most significant detail about living history development in Canada. The present would always frame the past. I'm going to link this statement to the conversations I've been having with you here for the last 10 weeks. The way we see now our 2020 vision, as it were, always frames the historical plays, the historical documents, events, and people we look at. This doesn't have to be inherently good or bad but it is worth noting that it exists, to be aware of it. When we come back, history that is more explicitly theater. Mabel Box is our sponsor again, a body care box with a sweet twist. Once a month, receive a box of relaxing bath products made with real maple syrup. One of the items this month is the Maple Sugar Bath Bomb. Smooth your skin in a warm bath and get out smelling like a warm, cozy waffle. Maple Box, MPLBX, Sugar Shack and Relax. Promo code Massey Report. Again.
Although my primary research focus was living history museum performances, I was also interested in other ways that Canadian history was performed. In 2013, I attended The Trial of Louis Riel in Regina, Saskatchewan. This play was written by John Coulter using transcripts of Riel's five-day trial in 1885. It was a centennial project and has been performed live every summer since 1967. It is, in fact, North America's longest-running historical drama. This year, it went online. When I interviewed members of the show, several of them had been involved with the play since its first production. One man had played the same character every year. His son had joined the production in high school and had played several roles. He had been playing Riel's lawyer for six years when I met him. I should note that this is not a professional theater company. Riel Co.'s only show is this one, and it is put together as community theater. Almost all of the members of the cast and crew are volunteers and have other jobs. They tour schools at the end of every school year and also offer tickets free to local boys and girls clubs. They believe strongly in the mission of the show, which is to make sure Riel's conviction and execution by the Canadian government is not forgotten. They are passionate about this specific piece of Canadian history. I attended the play three nights in a row. Not because it was an interesting, well-made play I couldn't get enough of. It's fine. It's based on a 19th century trial transcript, so it can be dry. But because the show includes the audience. The smallest audience the play can have is 12 men, because each night they pick a jury to sit on stage and deliver the verdict. The production also invited members of the audience to dress up and join the cast to sit in the courtroom section of the theatre. I was asked to join the cast one night as the wife of a doctor who was testifying. The company offers this option to audience members so that they might feel more responsible for the history they are learning about. The three so shows I saw were all different too, even though I saw them on consecutive evenings. When I asked the actor who played Riel about this, he told me that they adjust the script based on who could be in the play that night. Sometimes the cast member who plays testifying witnesses can't perform, so their testimony is removed. One of the doctors I had seen testify the first evening was a long-haul trucker and was due in Edmonton with a trailer of tractors, so his bit was just cut. The choice of material, Louis Riel, a Métis man considered both the founder of Manitoba and also a martyr to his cause. For a centennial project, to me echoes Riga's choice to write Rita Joe. It also confirms some of the supposition Lisa Aikman and I made last episode about Canadian theatre distinguishing itself from British and American drama by highlighting its marginalized stories. Now, Let Them Howl by Sharon Bayer is another type of historical play a re-performance of a reenactment. I think that's the best way to explain it. The play is a retelling and reenactment of the famous mock parliament play from 1914 that featured Nellie McClung and her peers of the Political Equality League. McClung and her league were aggressive agitators for women's suffrage. And in 1914, they held a mock parliament in Winnipeg's Walker's Theatre, where they turned the arguments male politicians made about women's voting against them. This is from a blurb from the Nellie McClung Foundation explaining the purpose of the play. Quote, the performance of the original play was a turning point in the struggle for suffrage, and most people think that there is a script that can be used to tell this wonderful story. 
alas, there is not, until now. Playwright Sharon Bayer has brought together Nellie's writings and news from the day to create this cheeky story of a group of women who took on the roles of men and assured the audience in mocking what they had just heard from the premier, nice men don't want to vote. It has been purposely designed, both in length and in style, to be used in classrooms and for groups who want to take the voting message to their colleagues, end quote. Bayer's play, then, is not only an example of historical performance, because it is about historical moment, but also it is a performance of a historical performance. For what were McClung and her cohort doing, if not putting on a play? It also pointed to the pedagogical use of historical theater. Like the vignette at a living history museum, this play is meant to teach and entertain. So is my next example. Video Cabaret. Video Cab was founded in 1976, and it makes plays which combine comedy, tragedy, pathos, and farce to dramatize Canada's history. They combine a cynical but thorough understanding of Canadian history from pre-Confederation to the Mulrooney years. Their website says that they, quote, created the first theater productions integrating cameras, tapes, piles of hot-wired TVs, and live rock and roll, end quote. It adds, quote, the company's core artists invented the black box style for Michael Hollingworth's epic play cycle, The History of the Village of the Small Huts, which satirizes and dramatizes Canada's history from Chief Donnacona and Jack Cartier to recent times, end quote. The company works mostly out of the black box theater at the back of the Cameron House on Queen Street, but are also invited to perform at other theaters, Soul Pepper, Theater Passmarai, Factory, and Stratford. Their plays at the Cameron House are magical. The black box is totally sealed from light, and the performers and stage are illuminated with light-reflecting paint. The costumes and makeup are elaborate. The actors' faces are powdered stark white, and their expressions are drawn on in an exaggerated, almost grotesque fashion. Their costume pieces are colorful, often oversized and padded. The cast play multiple roles, and they use costumes and exaggerated accents to distinguish the characters they're playing. The vibe of a video cab show is one of creators who have a complicated and awfully deeply critical ideas about a country and a system that they ultimately like and admire. The first time I saw a video cab show, I recognized its sentiment immediately. I've often felt that way when thinking about Canada and its history. Then there are forms of theatrical history which tell stories using traditional theater methods, like George Boyd's Consecrated Ground, which tells the story of the Africville Halifax community, one of Canada's oldest Black communities that was founded in the 1830s by Black loyalists and was razed to the ground in 1965 by the municipal government. The play, like Unity 1918, uses fictional characters to illuminate the history of a real time, place, and event. So there, an overview and I kept it under five hours. Next week on Dr. Canadiana, we're going to talk about adaptations. How the classical canon has been adapted, remixed, reimagined, and rethought by Canadian playwrights and other theater artists. Our case study will be Anne-Marie MacDonald's Goodnight Desdemona, Good Morning Juliet. Sources consulted for this podcast include the Rialco website, the Nellie McClung Foundation website, Theatre Encyclopedia, 
entry for Video Cab and George Boyd, and five years of cross-Canada doctoral research performed by me alone.